the tribal quarrel between Israel and Judah opens the door for a renewed rebellion led by a notable man of the tribe of Benjamin. This is the 43rd sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our Old Covenant reading as we look at insurrection and betrayal, our Old Covenant reading comes from 2 Samuel and chapter 20, the first eight verses, the first eight verses, one through eight. Beloved of the Lord, by inspiration of God, this is the word of God unto us this morning. And there happened to be there a man of Belial, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no part in David, neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So every man of Israel went up from after David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, But the men of Judah clave unto their king from Jordan even to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and put them in ward and fed them, but went not in unto them. So they were shut up unto the day of their death, living in widowhood. Then said the king to Amasa, Assemble me the men of Judah within three days, and be thou here present. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, But he tarried longer than the set time which he had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now shall Sheba the son of Bichri do us more harm than did Absalom. Take thou thy Lord's servants and pursue after him, lest he get up fence cities and escape us. There went out after him Joab's men, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men, and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue after Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa went before them, and Joab's garment that he had put on was girded unto him, and upon it a girdle with the sword fastened upon his loins and the sheet thereof. And as he went forth, it fell out. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, where Timothy was presiding over in Ephesians and chapter 6, a well-known passage of scripture, Ephesians and chapter 6, beginning in verse 10 to verse 18. By the same spirit, the apostle says this, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins gird about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take this helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but... The word of God stands forever, and by this word is the gospel presented unto us again this day with all of its admonitions, with all of its warnings, and with all of its lessons. 
Now, after the assassination of Absalom, tensions, as you remember from last time, tensions were very high between Israel and Judah. Each of the tribes wanted to be given the position of being closest to the king. Israel argued that they had more invested in the king because they had ten tribes, while Judah only had two. Now, Judah, on the other hand, argued that they had more invested in the king because they were his near kinsmen. And this quarrel rekindled the tensions between the two tribes. But David wanted nothing to do with this, and he sought to bring both factions together as a unified nation once again, because he knew that if they were unified, that would ensure Israel's power and security as a nation. And so whenever a nation, David understood that whenever a nation is divided, there is danger of its implosion and there's danger of revolution. Apparently, this man, Sheba, was part of this contention. And when he saw that things might be deteriorating between the tribes, that was his opportunity. And when he saw this, he thought it would further his plan to be king himself. So he tried to inflame the situation by launching a new insurrection against King David. Verse 1 begins by identifying the man very clearly as a wicked man of the notorious tribe of Benjamin. Now remember, this was the same tribe of Saul that, and the same tribe of the men of Saul that had sought to take the throne back for Saul, but it was also the same tribe of the Benjamites which had molested and killed the Levite's wife during the days of the judges. If you remember, these were the men of Benjamin. And we read this in 2 Samuel Chapter 20, verse 1, that he was a Benjamite. He was Sheba, the son of Bekri. And very clearly, the scripture makes sure that we understand he was a Benjamite, linking him back to these men and back to Saul and back to Ishbosheth. But to be identified as a man of Belial, which is what he was identified as, is to be identified as someone who was only an evil man, someone who only had evil intentions. He was a man of Belial. He was someone who was not to be trusted. In fact, as we see from the testimony here, he was an adversary to all righteousness, an adversary to the king, an adversary to the unification of all of Israel. Now the word Belial itself insinuates someone who is a naughty, evil man, who is a worthless person. He was a man of Belial. And so not only was the man worthless, but his pedigree was notorious. According to Judges 19 and Judges 20, these Benjamites, who were at that time also identified as men of Belial, were men of chaos. They were men of mayhem. They were, in fact, rapists and murderers. Moses identifies them as idolaters in Deuteronomy chapter 13. But in Deuteronomy 15 and verse 9 and Job 34 verse 18 and Psalm 101 verse 3 and Nahum 1 verse 11 and 15, the King James translates the Hebrew word used for Belial as wicked, not only worthless, which is really what the word means, but these men of Belial were actually wicked men. So we see immediately that Sheba is a wicked man. In other places, the King James translates the word Belial as evil or naughty, making sure that we know exactly what we are dealing with whenever someone is identified, either a man or a woman, as a person of Belial. Worthless, evil, 
naughty, a wicked individual. And so right at the outset, we can know much about this Benjamite Sheba, but we can know something more about this man Sheba. He was not only a man of evil intentions, he was not only a man of naughtiness and wickedness because he was from the same tribe that Saul was part of and there was a possibility that he was a supporter of Saul which would make him a supporter of Ishbosheth, Saul's son, who was slain by Rimmon and Rechab. So emotionally and psychologically, philosophically, even spiritually, he was kinfolk to Saul's family line. Now, if you remember, Rimon and Rechab, they assassinated Ishbosheth, Saul's son, while he was lying on his bed in the heat of the day, thinking that David would return to them a great reward for killing his enemy. But they, but they were surprised. To their surprise, David did the exact opposite. He actually executed them. And we saw this in chapter 4 of Samuel, Second Samuel chapter verse 12. And David commanded his young men and they slew them and cut off their hands and their feet and hanged them up over the pool in Hebron. Now there's another aspect to this introduction of Sheba that needs to be observed. All Sheba had to do was blow a trumpet. All he had to do to galvanize Israel, these ten tribes, was blow a trumpet. We don't read anywhere that he lobbied the tribes of Israel to side with him or to turn on David. Like in the days of Absalom, Absalom was lobbying all day long. But we don't read anything about this man Sheba. He already seemed to be in a position of influence. And this is why we need to be in positions of influence. This is why we need to position ourselves in our communities as influences for good, not like Sheba who is an influence for evil. So all Sheba had to do was to blow a trumpet in order to launch an insurrection, signaling there would be now war between Israel and Judah once again, so that he might take the throne from David. And this shows just how on edge everyone was. The contention had been elevated to critical mass, and when tensions run hot, the slightest instigation can spark a revolution. We see this today in our America. In our America today, it seems as if we today are on the precipice once again as it was in 1776. You have to be absolutely blind and ignorant and outside of what is happening around you to realize that America today is in crisis. And it might just take a Sheba to instigate a revolution. But in order for Sheba to simply speak or blow a trumpet for revolution seems to indicate that he had already been established as some kind of a leader within the ranks of the Israelites. He didn't just come out of left field. He didn't just just wake up one morning and say, gee, I'm going to blow a trumpet and everybody's going to follow me. He knew because he was observant that emotions were running very high, and since there was no one to mediate between Israel and Judah, Sheba took opportunity and he took action to facilitate an all-out rebellion against the king. So what was his ambition, if any? Well, apparently, first and foremost, he was obviously well-known. Otherwise, he would not have been able to move the men of the ten tribes of, of Israel to denounce David simply by blowing a trumpet. That's obvious. But could it be that his ambition was to take over the throne 
of the ten tribes and leave the two tribes of Judah to David, that he would have more tribes, he would have more power, and then he would eventually, maybe even eventually, unify the twelve tribes and become king instead of David. Why else would he instigate a revolution against the legitimate king? This seems to be more than just speculation, since he was of the tribe of Saul and kin to Ishbosheth. He wanted that throne, that dynasty, to be brought back to the Benjamites. Because he didn't just pop out of nowhere. It might also be possible that he was waiting, waiting in the wings for an opportunity to launch such a coup against David. And this was precisely the moment he had been waiting for. God had providentially orchestrated this moment for Sheba to step into it. He was obviously calculating. Perhaps he was observing the situation closely. And at, right at that moment, he would then take opportunity. The Reverend Howies agrees. He says, Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite, a man of Belial, think he might now step into the throne, widens the breach into rebellion. So there's also, again, a modern lesson to be gleaned from this historical event that the Church of Christ needs to take heart. While Saul's hatred for David and Absalom's hatred for David was conspicuous, in other words, it was very obvious, it seems as if Sheba's hatred and lust for the throne, hatred for David and lust for the throne, it seems that his comes out of nowhere. His intentions were secret. His intentions were hidden, well hidden, until he decided to make his move. And this was pure cunning. It takes us by surprise. We, we don't really hear much of Sheba. Very secretive, very cunning, waiting in the wings, stealthily. As soon as one rebellion was put down, another almost immediately rose up. The unwillingness to unify was really the problem. The pettiness was really the problem. The unwillingness to unify under the legitimate crown of David sparked this revolution. It sparked this rebellion. And so whenever there is disunity in Christendom, whether there's disunity in a nation, in Christendom, within the churches of Christendom, or even in a local congregation, whenever there's disunity, it weakens the power that God has given that entity. And an all-out assault and destruction might be in the near future. Because there will always be a revolt waiting to strike against the legitimacy and the authority of Christ and His church. And that's why unity is so important. That's why Paul spoke so often about unity. To come together under one banner, the banner of Christ and His covenant. So notice first, the church of Jesus Christ must never rest, therefore, from its watchfulness since there are always Sheba's lurking in the shadows. The enemy's always waiting to strike, to sow discord, to sow, sow heresies, to bring strife, doubts, and contentions. That's what the enemy does. Like a serpent hidden in the wheat field or in the green grass of what seems to be a lust pasture. The enemy of wicked men and the enemy of our own fleshly lusts are always ready to strike. And usually when you least expect it. We must be therefore rooted and grounded in the truth. And we must be able to recognize whenever schism or heresies rise up 
and seek to destroy the unity of Christ's people, Christ's church, or even a nation for that matter. The Apostle Paul cautions the people of God to always be on the lookout for an attack. You know, we live in this cushy America. We live in this cushy America and we don't think that, oh, everything's good. We wake up Sunday morning. It's nice. You get to work on Monday. The sun's out. Maybe it rains sometimes. But everything's good. You know, we have medicine. We have TV. We have YouTube. We have the internet. We have Google. Who can live without Google and our iPhones now? Everything's good. The enemy is in the wings. The enemy is waiting to strike. And we need to be rooted and grounded. The Apostle Paul tells the church at Corinth this. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Watch. Watch ye. Now, in the Greek, it would go something like this. You all watch. All of you, keep watch. Stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. He tells the same thing to the church at Colossae. He says, continue in prayer. Chapter 4, verse 2. And watch in the same with thanksgiving. To the church at Thessalonica, chapter 5, verse 6, the first epistle of Paul. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Secondly, the second strategic antidote must presuppose the unification of the church so that it can be actively working against the forces of evil, either within our flesh or in the face of evil men, institutions, and governments. And permit me to elaborate on this point. Christendom must unite. If it is to wield the power of the gospel, if it is to wield any influence in the world, Christendom must unite. The faithful churches, not those those big evangelical heretical churches, but the faithful reformed churches of Christ must unite. If they're going to wield any influence in the world, they cannot be divided as Israel and Judah were divided. Once there are tensions within Christendom, within the Reformed community, there's the possibility of division, and then there always is that possibility of defeat. Oh, you are of Apollos, you are of Paul, you are of Christ, you are of Cephas. You wear head coverings, you don't. You sing the Psalms, you sing the hymns. We can divide on anything. And until we're unified, we will still see destruction in our midst. But before Christendom can unite to be influential in the world, it must unite within its several congregations of faithful ministers. We talk about dominion, we talk about changing the culture. We can't even pull ourselves together within the Reformed faith. We can't even pull ourselves together within a single congregation to unify, to work together to fight together, to encourage together, to pray together. And that means that the body of Christ must first be obedient to the commandments of God as it concerns their personal life before they are obedient to the commandments to preach the gospel and change the world. If you are not right with God and if your family is not right with God, you can forget about any changing of the world. You can go out and save the world and then your whole family goes to hell in a handcart. We begin with ourselves. We begin with our children. We begin with our brothers and our sisters. So once a congregation takes seriously their faith, only then, only then can Christianity become effective in the world. You have to teach your children to be serious. 
when they walk into the sanctuary of Jesus Christ. This is a serious place. It's not your living room at home. It's not the playground. It's not the nursery. This is the sanctuary of Jesus Christ where God meets with His people through the preaching of the Word. And so as individual congregations take seriously the commission that Christ gave the church, they will be strengthened by the Holy Spirit, ready to unite with other faithful congregations. And the result? Power. The result is power. When that Spirit descended on the people in A.D. 33, there was power. The people were empowered to go forth boldly in the commission of the gospel. They were given power to impress upon the world a righteous organizing principle based upon the law of God's holy scripture. But there's another lesson to be gleaned from Sheba. We too must be careful not to telegraph our intentions to the enemies of the gospel. We have to be wise as serpents, like Sheba, waiting for our opportunity to press forth the crown rights of King Jesus. But now I have to ask another question. What are some of the signs? How do we examine ourselves? What are some of the signs that we take our religion seriously? That we take the worship of God seriously? That we take our families seriously? The training of our children? The catechizing of our children? What are some of the signs that we are actually taking our religion, our Christian religion, seriously? Well, firstly... When we take our religion seriously, we're always contemplating the Word of God. It's forever on our mind. David, even the king, said, I meditate upon thy word daily. We contemplate the Word of God. We meditate upon the Word of God, the canon of Scripture, and how it is to structure our entire world and life view. We're not meditating upon the other thing there, or that thing there, or the other thing over here. We're meditating upon the Word of God. And that means that there can be no disconnect between what we do and say with the Word of God. If you're meditating upon the Word of God, I hope your intention is so that I might do the Word of God. You know, I am sick and fed up and tired with people that meet and, and have these thinkathons. I want to do a thon. We talk about think tanks. I want a tank. I want something to get out there and make a difference with the Word of God. The second point, when we take seriously the Word of God, it means that we are interested in the Word of God, enough to learn what the Word of God teaches so that we can do what the Word of God teaches. If it commands that we teach our children diligently of the things of God, we have to teach them diligently because the Scripture never says, teach your children. It says, teach them diligently. And then it tells you what to teach them. So when mommy says this, they do that. Make sure that they obey. Don't allow them to rebel. Because if they rebel now, they'll rebel when they're 30. And then they'll go to hell and it's your fault. The commandment does not say, if you feel like it, be diligent. The commandment does not say, let someone else do it. It doesn't say, do it half-heartedly. It says, diligently. It means with all your might, with all your heart, with all your effort, with all your gusto, do it, do it. And I am afraid that by nature, as a result of the fall of man, we are not diligent by nature. God's word is to be read, understood, meditated upon, digested, and then converted into action. Third point. 
We are serious with our faith when we take seriously our marriages and cultivate them daily so that they become strong in the face of temptation. And let me just say this. If there is pornography in your house, you are not taking your marriage seriously. It will destroy you. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe you think I'm an idiot because you can handle it. But if it is in your life, it is if it is in your house, you are destroying your family, you're destroying your marriage. Take seriously your marriage. Cultivate your marriage daily so that your marriage becomes strong in the face of all kinds of temptation. Number four, for you single folk, stand alongside those families that are struggling or in need of assistance. Pray for them, encourage them, counsel them, be there for them, encourage them in their difficult duties. You have an essential role in the kingdom of God, don't shirk your responsibilities. Don't be an absentee single folk. Get in it. Get involved. Get to know the families. Make phone calls. Get some cards and send them out. Say, hey, I'm really, really thinking about you last week. Often because a single person can be more objective, they're pretty much better in directing young parents by pointing out some of the sensitive issues that can derail their entire families. No, my grade against the parent. So, well, what do you know? You're not married. You have no children. Ah, but I can see you with eyes very clearly. I see you. You can't see because you're emotionally hamstrung because they are children. Number five. Another sign of taking our religion seriously is when we have a genuine concern for the body of Christ. And I mean a genuine concern for the body of Christ. I don't mean you come in on Sunday morning and say, Hey, how you doing? Nice to see you. I'll see you later. Everyone who is part of the local congregation of which you are a part of must be your concern. Now I know that the structure of our little congregation, and this this holds true for other congregations, especially the Dutch Reformed congregations, because in their congregations, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. Being Italian descent, I was not much. I'd never be anything. And it was a clique. I call it tribalism. Make sure you young folk that are in the same family unit do not fall into that clique. You have other people here that care for you, that are concerned about you. Do not be separate from everyone else. This is the body of Christ. It's very important. Circulate, talk, share, encourage, comfort. That is the call. So we are to be concerned with all of those within the congregation of Jesus Christ, but even those who who we have trouble getting along with. Do you think that we're all a day at the beach? I especially, I'm no day at the beach. And neither are you. You are not Adonis. You are not the most soft and cuddly person in the world. We all have our bristly points. But we're still brothers and sisters. We still should have concern for one another. We are to care for the lovable and we are to care for the unlovable. Number six, another telltale sign that we take our religion seriously is when we are careful to avail ourselves to the means of grace, particularly 
the Bible study, the worship, the Lord's Supper. This is where the Word of God is unpacked. And let me comment upon worship and the Lord's Supper. Parents, you must be careful to impress upon your children the importance of worship and the Lord's table. Let me take a moment to repeat this warning to you children. You young men and you young women, those of you that have been partaking of the Lord's Supper, if you cannot concentrate on the message from the pulpit by the pastor or by the elder or by the deacon when they are in the pulpit, then you are no longer to participate in the Lord's Supper. If you are not mature enough to listen to the Word of God attentively when it is being expounded from the pulpit on the Lord's Day in the Lord's house, you are not ready to partake even if you have been partaking of the Lord's table. Simply because you have said you're a Christian doesn't mean you are serious enough. And if I see, or if anyone of this session sees, that you are taking the Lord's Supper and you're still, during the day, goofing off, playing with toys, especially during worship, or other behavior that this leadership finds irreverent, especially during the Lord's service, and you have been allowed to take the Lord's Supper, the communion table of the Lord, you will henceforth be forbidden until you can show proper Christian maturity. And that's how serious I am about this day. And the reason why America is going down the toilet and because we as Christians are not serious enough, not generationally, not even in our own day. God's worship is where the Lord meets His people and it is where He demands reverence. He demands it. What we are witnessing with this rebellious man, Sheba, is a lack of reverence, a lack of seriousness, a lack of severity for the things of God with a lack of concern for the unity of God's people, with a lack of concern for the security of the nation of Israel. He was just concerned with himself. Now consider the accusation, or better yet, the rallying cry of of Sheba against David. And this is just incredibly telling. Chapter 20, verse 1 of 2 Samuel. And there happened to be there a man of Belial, a worthless, no-good-for-nothing, wicked, evil man of naughtiness and ill intent, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no part in David, neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. Stop your negotiations, stop everything to your tents, we are going to revolt. Sheba posits the notion that since Judah was David's kinsman, that those of Israel and the ten tribes of that nation had no inheritance with David. And therefore they should go out on their own and rebel against any confederacy with David and his tribe. How he again observes, he says, since Judah seemed to engross the king, he advises the men of Israel to renounce the ten parts they claimed and to have no part in David. The trumpet is blown and Sheba now is their leader. That's exactly what he wanted. I remember in the church in New York, after we planted this church here, one of the deacons stood up and he told the people exactly what Sheba is telling Israel. We have no part in that congregation down there. We have no part in Pastor Paul Michael Raymond. We have no part in anything to your tenso Israel. Problem was, we would not allow that. 
and their revolt was put down quite quickly. Now, as we have already determined, the quarrel between Israel and Judah was foolish, and that's usually what happens. It's over nothing. But seeing an opportunity to capitalize on her feelings, Sheba adds to David's misery by dividing the nation once again. And it seems that there was a personal hatred. You've got to read into this just a little bit. Sheba hated David. And I only say this because Sheba not only tells Israel that they have no portion in David, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say King David. He doesn't even say David. He says the son of Jesse. The son of Jesse seems to insinuate that David, rightly so, he came from a nobody family, a poor family. He was not royalty. He has no royal lineage attached to it other than the fact that Samuel anointed David from that family. And she was saying, who, do he, who is that, gay, that guy? Who is that man from, from Jesse's lineage? I'm from the Benjamite. I'm from a lineage of Saul, the king. You have no part in the son of Jesse. And as a result of Sheba's declaration, the Israelites returned to their houses in order to reorganize under their new leadership. And that we see in verse 2. So every man of Israel went up from David, from after David, and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah clave unto their king from Jordan even to Jerusalem. Thank God for some men who are faithful. But what is curious about this situation is David's lack of involvement with the men of Israel and Judah to quell the insurrection. I do believe, however, while there is no record here in this narrative account, in this historical account of David's involvement, beseeching God or praying, what am I going to do? It might be that his prayers are, however, recorded in the situation in the Psalms. For instance, in Psalm 62.9, he writes, Surely men of low degree are vanity... And men of high degree are a lie to be laid in the balance. They're altogether lighter than vanity. So he used the word vanity, which actually means worthless, perhaps pointing to Sheba, who was a man of Belial, a worthless man of the tribe of Benjamin. However, even in the Psalms, other than maybe in Psalm 62, there's really no mention of the situation, which is quite curious. But now that the sides are drawn with David on the one side, with Judah and Sheba on the other side, with Israel, David... Sadly, poor David is back to ground zero with a divided nation and and, and an insurrection. And that's what happens when sin goes unchecked. It destroys without mercy. David now must set some household issues in order before a battle ensues. And he begins with his concubines that had been defiled by Absalom. We see this in verse 3. And David came to his house at Jerusalem. The king took the ten women, his concubines who had left to keep the house, and put them in ward and fed them, but went not in unto them. So they were shut up unto the day of their death, living in widowhood without David as their husband. At this point, we have to ask the question, what relationship did these women have to King David? And the scripture calls them concubines. But, but I think they were more than that. I think they were more than that. They, were, they should have been considered as his wives or at least engaged to be his wives or having some intimacy. And I only say this because the wife of the Levite of Judges 19 was called a concubine. But we see from the context of the narrative, she was clearly identified as his wife as well. And so at the very least, these women had an intimate relationship with the king and were not just some throwaway playthings. Now, if this is the case, then in Absalom's hatred of his father, 
Absalom going into David's wives is guilty not only of rape but of adultery, which is quite ironic since Absalom was so angered on by by his brother Amnon's violation against his sister Tamar that he goes into his father's intimate companion basically does the same thing that his brother did. What a hypocrite! Adam Claude comments, notice what he says. David could not well divorce them. He could not punish them as they were not in the transgression. He could no more be familiar with them because they had been defiled by his son. He shut them up and fed them, made them quite comfortable, and they continued as widows to their death. End quote. So now let's consider David's response to the schism. Knowing that war was unavoidable, David calls a new war chief to command the army of the southern tribe. So he's going to put off Joab, and he's going to put on someone else. So he calls Amasa. We see this in verse 4. Then he says to Amasa, the king says to Amasa, Assemble me the men of Judah within three days, he gives them a time frame, and be thou here present. In other words, you go out, assemble the men, get the army together, and then get back here with a unified force, and then we'll launch our campaign. So Amasa is now David's war chief and is tasked with assembling David's army in order to quell the rebellion. But this must have infuriated Joab because Joab is not to be trifled with. He believed that was his place. And this man, Amasa, is taking his place. So David gives Amasa three days to prepare for the battle. But for whatever reason, we don't know what the reason, he takes longer than the appointed time. We see this in verse 5. Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he tarried longer than the set time which he had appointed him, which David had appointed him. Here's the king saying, three days, get it together, because that's what we need. Because we are at critical mass, we're on a time schedule, get your job done. Be diligent, get your job done, you have three days to get it done. The fact that Amasa took longer than the time appointed by David tells us a number of things about the man. Number one, it troubled David to the point where he then said to Abishai, now shall Sheba, the son of Bichri, do us more harm than did Absalom. Maybe I was not very wise in calling Amasa. Because timing in warfare is always critical and Amasa obviously didn't take that to heart. And that troubled David, thinking that perhaps Amasa was not up to the task. So, second point is, interestingly, he complains to Abishai. Now remember, Abishai is Joab's brother. And this is most curious. Why complain to Abishai, whose brother you just fired from being war chief? Did David want sympathy? Did he want Abishai to tell Joab? Was he asking for Joab to return through a veiled and cryptic request through his brother? Not wanting to say, you know, I think I made a mistake. Maybe Joab should have been. Maybe I shouldn't have been so hasty. Well, we really don't know. All we know is he's asking Abishai to assemble the troops because Amasa was tarrying. Amasa was not up, is what we learned from this man. He was not up to the challenge against Sheba and Israel and Sheba would have to be met by Abishai. Abishai would have to have the support of Joab's army, even if it was without Joab. And perhaps David thought, well, you're the next one in line to Joab. They, they, they value you. They respect you. So you go, because Amasa is tarrying. 
So David here employs Abishai to take the command, even if only temporarily. We see this in verses 6 and 7. And David said to Abishai, Now shall Sheba, the son of Bichri, do us more harm than did Absalom. Now note how important it was for Amasa to be back in three days. He wasn't back in three days. And David said, You know what? Our timings, we, we lost the opportunity. Take thou thy Lord's servants and pursue after him, lest he get him fenced cities and escape us. And there went out after him Joab's men and these other two tribes, the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men, and they went out of Jerusalem to pursue after Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now you have to admire, you have to admire the resolve of the tribe of Judah. Maybe there was whisperings, here we go again. We just finished with an insurrection. We just finished. We were almost destroyed. Here we go again. Another crisis. Another thing. We got to deal with it. We got to navigate over it. What next? When reading the scriptures, we sometimes fail to consider the little things and yet they can be very enlightening. They didn't say that. They immediately go on the offensive. Just because they faced another crisis, they did not melt under the stress. I'm amazed. I'm amazed at the, at the resolve, the, the tenacity of these men. They met the crisis head on. Job's men did not wait for Sheba to attack. They initiated the fight and sought to meet them in the battle, face to face, head on, not discouraged, but invigorated. Now that only comes from God. That only comes from God the Holy Spirit. But it comes through much prayer and much much meditation. And this is how the church should deal with the wicked. Head on, courageously, invigorated, taking the offensive because when good men sleep, the enemy sows its tears and gains a foothold. Moreover, Job's men had a competent leader. David called a competent leader. Abishai was a competent leader. And this teaches us that leadership is an essential component in the affairs of ministry and Christ church. Abishai's leadership was anything but passive. It was aggressive. He was going to meet the enemy courageously. He was going to meet them head on, right on the battlefield, face to face, mano a mano. He was going to win the day for the Christ. For his king and his country, he was going to win the day. But we have to understand something else. The odds were against him. Humanly speaking, the odds were against him. And yet you find Abishai... What did he care? He didn't care. He had God. He was doing this for the king, the, the legitimate king, the son of Jesse. He didn't care about the odds. Even though it was ten to two, ten tribes against two tribes, that didn't dissuade him from going out to meet the enemy. There was no hesitation. There was no fear. There was no 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 waiting. He was tenacious. He was resolute. Fully resolved. And that too is a lesson for us. We need to meet the enemy head on, trusting in God for a victory, tenaciously with zeal and full resolve. By this time, Massa meets the army with Abishai. Finally, late, but he does meet the army with Abishai and Joab at the great stone in Gibeon. Now that's curious too, because Gibeon must have brought some very interesting and disturbing, troubling memories for Joab and Abishai since it was at the brook of Gibeon where the men of David and the men of Ishbosheth under Abner engaged in a war game. 
It is also the place where Asiel, Joab's brother, pursued after Abner and was subsequently killed by Abner. And this was the premise by which Joab assassinated Abner later on, a vindication of his brother's death. And yet perhaps another more pressing motive for the assassination of Abner was because Joab believed that David was going to make Abner his war chief and retire Joab, almost in the same way that David retires Joab and gives the war chief position to Amasa. And so we have the same situation set up here at Gibeon years later. And so in Joab's mind, perhaps, Amasa, like Abner, had stolen his position, what he believed was his legitimate position as war chief. Now the scripture also tells us that the Cherethites and the Pelethites were part of Judah's forces. This tells us something else about the military tactics of David and Joab. Since it was 10 to 2 tribal situation, Joab, Abishai, Amasa, David, all of Judah, they could use some help. There's no shame in asking for help. And so they call upon the Cherethites and the Pelethites. But now you have to ask another question. Why were these tribes willing to fight and possibly die for David. They weren't of the tribe of Judah. They had no kinship ties. Who were they? Well, these had been with David, if you remember, while he was on the run from Absalom and had shown previously kindness and concern for the king and by the king. And as a result, they remained loyal to him. In fact, later on, as we read later on, they are favored during the reign of Solomon as people quite close to the king. David's previously kindness during a time of great distress paid off. And now these tribes would band together with David's army for a victory over the rebels. And so now at the great stone of Gibeon, the scripture explains that Amasa was wearing Joab's garment, which had his sword as part of the uniform. You have to understand something, that this was a royal military garment for a general. And when they were at the great stone which is in Gibeon, Amasa went before them, and Joab's garment that he had put on was girded unto him. In other words, David took Joab's military general uniform, which had a sword, and gave it to Amasa. Just think about, poor Joab, his head must have exploded, thinking, what in the world is going on here? That's mine. The generalship is mine. The warship position is mine. And Joab's garment that he had put on was girded unto him, and upon it a girdle with a sword fastened upon his loins in the sheath thereof. And as he went forth, it fell out. Apparently, while fastening the sword, it was not securely placed upon Amasa. It was not secured properly. Joab, looking at this, I just could picture poor Joab, his beard must have been Nazis, eyes aflame with anger and envy. But the fact that he could not put the uniform on properly, nor gird his sword on properly, tells us something else about Amasa. Was he qualified? Was he really qualified? If he was unable to secure his weapon of war securely, as a military general, as a war chief for the king of Israel, David, was he fit to be a general? And the answer must be a resounding no. Who goes out to battle without securing his weapon? Did he not test it before he ran into battle? You see, the man was unprepared and he was unqualified. Now, while this has a practical lesson attached to it, it also has a spiritual lesson as well. 
Practically, if you gird upon yourself a firearm or any other instrument of war or self-defense, you better know how to use it. I see a lot of people in this congregation. God bless you and I encourage it all day long. Wear your firearm. Wear your sidearm. Bring your, bring your guns. But you better know what you're doing. You better know how to use it. Because if you don't know how to use it, you're going to kill someone, maybe even yourself. You need to be not only knowing how to use it, when to use it. You must be skilled in its use. You see, knowledge is one thing. Skill is another. That means you should be familiar with your weapon and proficient in its use. I remember a very dear friend of mine. I I miss him terribly. He has done more in my life to encourage me for the battle than probably anyone else. Uh, he was um, he was drafted to a professional baseball team. I believe it was Cleveland. And he was pro- playing professional baseball. And the reason why he was drafted is because he knew the game so well. So well. But he couldn't do what he knew. He wasn't skilled. So it wasn't that he... He was stupid. He didn't know about how to run the bases. But he wasn't skilled at the game. You cannot only know, you have to be skilled. You have to have a proficient use of your firearms, of your weapons of warfare. But then there's that spiritual lesson as well. And more important lesson here. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. If you are not skilled in its use, if it is not securely fashioned to your everyday actions, in your meditation and your diligence, it will fall from you when you need it most, as it did during the days of King David with Amasa. You see, Amasa knew what the sword was for. He knew what it was used for. He knew what it was made of, intellectually, how it was to be used. But he was ill-trained in its actual use. I ask you this, how many Christians are ill-trained in the use of the sword of the Spirit? Oh, you know a whole lot of stuff about it. You know it's inspired. Well, most of us do. We know that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, training in righteousness but never have actually trained with it in the real world of battle. Never actually applied it in the real world, in their own lives, in their families, in their children's upbringing, in anything that has to do with concreteness. Amasa couldn't gird upon his sword properly because he was unqualified. And therefore, when he needed it most, he could not wield it properly. Unprepared for battle. Ready to engage. A massive sword falls from its sheath. We'll pick this up next time when we examine the mortal consequences of being ill-prepared. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.